important because this miracle is going to be setting up uh, the next interactions and conversations that he's going to be having with others. He's going to be giving them some, should be giving them some context. <clears throat> and we all, we know at this point from the other gospels and this one that Again, there's a large group of people around him almost always at this point. They barely had any time uh, for themselves, uh, to themselves, to take a break, and even to eat. We read that in uh, Mark's account, which is why we read often about Jesus going off alone to have that alone time and to spend time with uh, just him and God. Now, at this point, also, uh, John the Baptist had been uh, executed by the order of Herod. And Jesus uh, had just learned about it and not had time to mourn yet. So that's, again, another reason why um, we see him wanting to go off alone to have that time to mourn. And Matthew's account in chapter 14 covers that. Uh, With John the Baptist just being executed at the order of Herod, um, news was coming to Herod about Jesus and what he was doing. And Herod was wanting to see him. Especially since some people were saying that uh, some of the news coming back to Herod was that John uh, was raised from the dead. Uh, also that uh, some others say that Elijah, he was Elijah, and while others said that he was one of the prophets. And uh, Luke's account in chapter 9 talks about that. And we also see where Jesus was not necessarily wanting to encourage that contact at this time, so it's another reason for him slipping away and, and uh, getting some time to himself away from the crowds. And that uh, kind of sets us up for going into chapter 6. So if you're in chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. After these, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he performed, uh, on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he said, uh, but this he said to test him, for he knew, uh, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? We'll stop there. Uh, now I want to look at the, the Sea of Galilee. We've talked about that a couple times already. Um, but we also see it named the Sea of Tiberias here. Uh, the sea had different names uh, in different times of history and with different people. Uh, the Hebrew name for it was the Sea of uh, Kenareth or Kenaret, while the Greek for it was Gesenaret. And we see Luke mention that in Luke 5. Uh, call it that. The Babylonians and even uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, called it the Sea of Genesar which is also, again, another derivative of Kenneret. And then lastly, at the first, uh, at the end of the first century, it was uh, named 
renamed, I should say, by Herod Antipas, Tiberius, after uh, Caesar Tiberius, which is why we see John give that second name uh, to clarify that. Uh, as a side note about the Sea of Galilee, uh, is that it's one of the lowest freshwater lakes in the world, uh, altitude-wise. And it's about 690 to 700 feet below sea level. And it's the second lowest lake in the world, uh, on, on the, yeah, in the world after the Dead Sea, which is what the Jordan, uh, through, uh, the Sea of Galilee feeds into the Dead Sea. And its circumference has about, um, 33 miles. So that kind of just sets you up with a little bit of, uh, the geography aspect of the Sea of Galilee that we'll be reading later on. We'll, uh, it'll give us a little insight into that. So anyways, we have, uh, back to the multitude, we have this huge multitude of people following Jesus. And, uh, I don't know about you guys, but that would get old very quickly. Not having time to yourself, uh, even to eat which is obviously important to sustain the body. Yet he still sees them. He still sees this group of people after this long period of time, uh, continually seeing them, but he sees them and he still has compassion on them. Uh, that's pretty telling of the character of God and shows how Jesus exhibits it. So he went with that compassion. He went and started teaching them, and he taught on in the evening when it was getting late, and the people were getting hungry. And we see Jesus, he had a purpose, just like it seems like he has a purpose for everything, which I'm sure he did, he did uh, in asking Philip a question. Uh, Philip was from that area, so he's asking the person who has the knowledge of the area what they can do about that. He also wanted to conf- confirm something, and that's that um, he was confirming something to those there and to those that would, that would be told about it with that question, that there was no possible way to feed all of those people. Uh, Philip's reply was that it would take more than 200 denarii, uh, and that's just so people can have a little, most people wouldn't even have a little bit to eat with that amount. Now, a Roman coin or a denarii was one day's wage for somebody. So we're talking 200 days of wages, um, so over half a year. And that was not enough to feed that many people that were there. So that confirms not only the the miracle aspect of it, but also the number of people that were there. Now the disciples knew that Jesus uh, was powerful. They knew his power. But again, we they still didn't understand the depth of it, how, how all-powerful he was and what he was capable of. We can see Andrew... Uh, possibly being optimistic, uh, bringing that boy with the fish and the loaves. And uh, although he, at that point, still recognizes, what can this do? The math didn't work out. He recognized that. And that leads us to chapter 10, verse 15, uh, through 15. So let's read those. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, So the men sat down in a number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he asked the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. 
Therefore they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore Jesus uh, perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now with this, the Gospel of Mark's account, they told us that when they were separated, they were separated in groups of 50s and 100s. And when totaled, they counted 5,000 men. Uh, Every account says that there were 5,000 men that were counted. They didn't count the women and the children. So that number would obviously be swollen significantly more than just 5,000 people. And of course, the number of people is important to show uh, how amazing of that a miracle that he did, um, which is interesting that his disciples didn't make that connection when he had done the, the water to wine in Cana that they had saw. Uh, but also with this uh, number, it's important because um, of their response to the miracle, the, the Jews' response to the miracle. And that's that Jesus could have had an army in an instant. He could have had an army of 5,000 men that were willing to follow him at that point, uh, which is a considerable uh, army instantaneously that would have obviously grown and grown quickly. So we see that that's not Jesus' purpose, uh, is to come here and start a rebellion of the Jews to start their their sovereignty. Um, that, w- that was their understanding of it. That that's what they desired. That's not what Jesus' purpose was. That's not his goal. We also see many uh, great characteristics of Jesus, obviously through the whole Bible, but here that we should be tempting to emulate. Um, his prayer life is a great example that we should be uh, looking to follow. We see him talk to God a lot uh, with the people alone. Um, here we see him giving thanks for the meal that they were about to take. Uh, that reason enough uh, for us uh, is, is enough reason for us to thank God before we consume our meals and thank him for it. Sometimes it's difficult to remember um, because uh, we don't have an issue of getting food like they did back then. We have it so readily, it's, it's uh, second nature to just grab some food and to eat and not think about... Uh, what if we didn't have that ability, like some people do around the world, like they have in the past? Um, something to to consider before we uh, before we do consume our food is is uh, how easy we have it, and that is a, a blessing by God. But it could be turned into a curse if you uh, don't remember that aspect. Uh, we also have busy schedules. We're running around place to place, barely having time to sit down and eat. Uh, so sometimes it's hard to remember. Uh, but let us remember this example that Jesus gave us uh, and remember uh, God's blessings to us and, his, and the fact that he provides for us daily. So let's just slow down and take that time. Again, what a great example we have uh, through Jesus. And definitely thankful for that. Now we see that all the people there, 
there was so much food that they were satisfied when they ate. And there was not only they were satisfied, but there were plenty of leftovers, 12 basketfuls. When Jesus performs a miracle, there is no question uh, about the fact that it was impossible, um, yet complete when it was done. It wasn't done halfway or partially. It was full. Now, at this point, they had been following him, seeing the, the things that he done. he had done, but uh, now at this point, they make the statement that they were convinced that he is the prophet spoken of. Um, <clears throat> and we'll see uh, him to go on and talk about that. And that again, we we mentioned that prophecy that uh, of uh, the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy eighteen. And with them. Uh, Jesus, with them, Jesus provided that food miraculously. And again, so them wanting him to be king, it's understandable that they associated him with that prophecy uh, because with Moses, uh, manna came down from heaven and, and fed the people. And with Jesus, again, he provided food to them miraculously. So it's understandable they made that association with him being the prophet. It seems that uh, there was maybe question about it before because they thought he might be Elijah, the prophet, John. But here they kind of make that conviction that we think that he's he's going, he's the prophet that was spoken about. And again, with when the when you're looking at the Jewish people's viewpoint, what a great leader for the army to have somebody that can um, provide food to its troops. You don't have to worry about the logistics of providing food for them. That's huge. They would be able to uh, travel and not have to worry about obtaining food. They would have it wherever they stopped. Uh, their campaigns can be extended and long. Or if they uh, were in a fortress during a prolonged siege, they wouldn't have to be worried about being cut off and surrounded and not being able to provide for the people inside. They would have food. Uh, if people were uh, injured... Or had medical problems, he had the ability to help him with that. So again, when thinking in physical terms, uh, that would make an unstoppable force, right? And yet, that was not his purpose. That was not the goal of all this. And they were being distracted by that physical aspect. We see that common theme keep on replaying. That leads us to verse sixteen uh, through twenty-one. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea rose, and because of a great wind, was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And they willingly received him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at land where they were going. 
Now, in other accounts, again, we see that Jesus had encouraged, strongly encouraged, his disciples to continue on without him to Capernaum. Again, something that seems so minor, but yet it appears to be by design when looking at it, uh, the big picture. I don't think that even though the disciples, most of them were confident fishermen, that they would have chosen to sail at night on the Sea of Galilee in the darkness of the evening. I don't know if uh, you've ever been on a small boat in bad weather or doing something in the darkness, especially on, a, on the water. Um, that can be kind of scary, right? And the words that are used to describe what happened... The, the sea rising because the wind was so strong. Uh, that uh, it's not a comforting way to describe what was going on if you were in that boat. And these men were used to being on the water. They were used to handling the elements, right? <clears throat> now, uh, they were already anxious at this point because of the because of the elements, because of the weather. And not only that, and then they get to the point where they're terrified because they see somebody walking on the water. Um, it's hard to, hard to imagine seeing that. But thankfully, Jesus quells their terror, and he calls out to them, and they recognize him. And he enters the boat, and the storm calms, and suddenly they were at their destination. Now, most of them say that they were a couple miles out. We just read that they were two to three miles out from the shore. Um, the Sea of Galilee is a pretty big sea, uh, big, big sea. Well, it's a big body of water. And uh, they were immediately at that destination. So that was, again, two miracles that we see occurring there. Is, uh, well, three, really. Jesus walking on the water, quelling the storm, and then immediately being over to their destination. Again, the main purpose of that was to show his disciples, again, confirm Jesus' position and uh, his kingship and his authority over creation. So that's something that they hadn't seen was that, that ultimate authority over, over creation. He's also indicating that he didn't need man to try to force him into a position that they wanted him to be in. He was where he needed to be and doing what he needed to be doing. We'll also see another reason he had done it that way, that uh, through that process. And let's go ahead and start reading verses 22 through 27. On the following day, when the people were standing on the other side of the sea, they saw that there was no boat there except the one that which the disciples had entered. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats had come from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they 
found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because of the signs you saw, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now we see the people here using their skills of deduction. Uh, and notice that Jesus had gotten there in a way they couldn't figure out. Uh, and so they ask him, how did you get, how, they had that wonder of how he got there and when he got there. Jesus didn't directly answer them. He left that up for them to, to uh, figure out, but he, he has that question to mark whether that was miraculous or not. They understood that something wasn't right. Something uh, that was done in a way they couldn't figure out. Uh, so, again, Jesus didn't, de- didn't directly answer them, but he, he did address the fact that they were only interested in the entertainment purposes of miracles, it seems like, for them. They took it as entertainment value and not the true purpose and the meaning, and wasn't seeking the true purpose and the meaning of them. Jesus went on to enlighten them about the meaning. That Jesus had the ability to fill them spiritually. But again, they were distracted by the physical filling of their stomachs. That leads us to verse 28 through 33. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore, they said to him, What sign do you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the question going back uh, is it's a good question, right? But it wasn't at a good time. And it's kind of hard to actually be whole about what their motive was in asking that question. They're still It shows that, that by them asking that question that they're still not getting it which again seems to be the theme throughout this book here. Um, but Jesus refocuses the discussion. Uh, they seem to be asking, what do they need to do to be able to do these things? And Jesus tells them that they are required to believe him, believe in him. We continue to see uh, throughout the Gospels and the Bible that it takes humbling oneself and obeying Jesus, whom God sent. And they were getting the gist of what he was saying, and so they wanted, and they said that they required signs uh, to believe in him. After all that they had seen, they were still demanding signs. I guess uh, the previous ones that they had seen, they weren't grand enough for them to support Jesus' claim. 
that he was the Messiah or from God. They wanted something grander than what Moses did for Israel. Again, he had to correct their understanding that God is the one that gave them that manna, not Moses. And that the manna was not the true bread from heaven that gives eternal life, which comes from him who came down from heaven. And we're going to be getting more, he's just going to be getting deeper and deeper in this concept in verse 34 through 40. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I will have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all of all he has given me, of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son of God, the Son and believes in him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Just like uh, the woman just like the woman at the well that we read about before, we see that they wanted that bread. They desired that bread. And then again, Jesus had to spell it out plainly. I am the bread is what he says. I'm the bread. That bread that I was talking about, the bread of life. Then he again addressed their lack of belief, saying they needed to change that. They needed to uh, take, a, take an account on themselves and to realize that and change that. But Jesus gives them a promise that uh, he confirms that he will not cast out those who come to him. What a great promise uh, he has given to them and us. Now there's two things being mentioned in this section. Uh, And the Bible points to a pivotal aspect of God's creation, and that's free will. Uh, That's an important aspect to God's creation and to Christianity. He gave this to us from the beginning. He desires that uh, people choose to love him and to follow him. Just like uh, we have the choice to follow him, we also have the choice, once we start to follow him, to forfeit our salvation by discontinuing our fellowship with him. God desires all to be saved, but he gives us the choice. Uh, we will not be cast away unless we make that decision ourselves. And that's what Jesus is saying. And that's what the Bible tells us. Jesus mentions here uh, seven times in this chapter that he has come down from heaven, claiming his deity, giving the reason, uh, that is the reason why, one of the many reasons why, He's able to do these things. He is from God. He is God. And that moves down to verse 41 through 51. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How is it then, he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to him, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you that he, uh, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give the life for the life of the world. So that understanding of what he just said, that he was God, that he is from God and is God, um, that started the Jews turning against him. He was claiming to be greater than Moses, and while and uh, an equal while submissive to God, they got caught up in the fact that he was thinking he was conceived like they all were. How could he be from heaven? Again, distracted by the physical. Jesus explains further that God draw, draws those that are open to learning. By them hearing the word and believing the word. Coming back around to the concept of him, and then he comes back to the concept of him being the bread, and that if anyone eats or engulfs by believing, they will live forever. It is surprising that Jews uh, didn't see that correlation when he was talking between the Old Testament sacrifices and the metaphors being used here by Jesus for his sacrifice. And we're going to continue this conversation, verse uh, 52 through 71. So we'll finish off the chapter here. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? 
What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered to them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. <clears throat> so, I should probably touch pretty briefly on uh, how <clears throat> condemned in the law, how condemning in the law it was to uh, eat someone's flesh for cannibalism or drinking of the blood, which uh, is said to contain the life. Uh, even to relate it to any other concept was hard for them to get past. I know when even talking about it, we have kind of a revolting uh, reaction to that. You know, it's it's not something that, um, it's something that's still frowned upon pretty considerably today. Uh, his followers, talking about how difficult is to, it was to understand that even that with that meaning of difficult was like offensive. And again, I'm really, I don't know if you guys are tired of me saying this, but I'm getting tired of saying it. Uh, they're stuck on the physical, right? And we see that theme over and over again, just people being stuck on this physical world. And they're not seeing the spiritual meaning. And Jesus even, Jesus brought that up to the disciples. He explained that aspect. Uh, and that was to the disciples, the people that were following him at that time. It was, right? it was more than just the twelve. And we see that in verse 63 when he was talking about them. It's also uh, spiritual and not physical um, when he's talking about it while using the imagery of the physical sacrifices under the law, which is why, why he's correlating that to. Which is typically what Jesus does, since we don't, fully comprehend the spiritual aspect of it. He always he always has an association to the physical that we can relate it to, uh, even though it's not exactly the same. It's like a it's like a shadow, right? <clears throat> we know um, we know that the Lord's Supper that we take um, part in is not the method by which we obtain eternal life. Uh, but it's um, it, but it's something that we do because it's commanded for the remembrance of it. Right? We obtain eternal life by becoming united with Christ's blood. Um, and by, uh, through his, his sacrifice, uh, through baptism, the flesh that's mentioned is indicative of his bodily sacrifice 
and his blood represents the atonement we receive because of his death. Here Jesus is not talking about, he's not referencing the Lord's Supper at this point. But when we partake of the Lord's Supper and remember that, it is referencing this concept. Uh, the concept that Jesus, uh, there's a concept here that also is that Jesus is able, that he talks about, he goes into furthering explaining that he's able to provide that spiritual sustenance that fully satisfies our deepest needs. Uh, as long as, and this isn't what he mentions, uh, as long as we continue to abide in him, that abiding aspect is important. That we read of in verse 56 that he mentions that abiding is that continual partaking of Jesus and walking in the light, which he is the light, and having that intimate fellowship with him in faith. So a question um, that, that I came up with that just reading this is, could you imagine being some of those people that were following him and listening to him and uh, seeing all that he did and then him saying something that we didn't agree with. And so, stop following him and go back home and continue doing what we were doing. And then later, hearing the the apostles teach about him and realizing that that was the Christ that we were listening to. And we had the opportunity to follow him when we didn't. Uh, it's hard to imagine, but man, that that, uh, that uh, would be a hard realization to come to. But we see the result of that when the apostles did do that in Acts. We see that, uh, that repentance that, and that forgiveness that they received, even though they went through all that, even though they, they um, walked away from Jesus, uh, they were still taken back in. Uh, and that reaction, I would imagine, would be the same way I would be reacting to that news. You know, what can we do? Now, uh, Jesus goes on to ask his disciples if they wanted to leave. And again, that's a question that that's a question that um, was not for Jesus' benefit. He knew the answer to that question. That was for the disciples' benefit and ours because of Peter's answer and their realization that uh, that who Jesus was. And we also see that the apostles, or the disciples at the time, the twelve, the eleven at that time, uh, they were starting to get that. At least Peter was, and they left us with that ultimate truth. And we will leave off there. And we will thank you for your uh, time together, searching the scriptures and going through it. And we will continue next week.